Jesus. That's why we're here, amen? By the way, it's good to be back. But I missed you while we were gone until I heard that it was snowing when we were enjoying warm weather, and I had to admit I was glad to be where I was for that short bit. Um, but it's good to be home. It's good to be back, back here. Um, let's, let's hop right into Revelation chapter 11. And uh, we're uh, in chapter 11 now of, uh, of the book of Revelation, the 11th hours of study. And uh, last week, well, actually, uh, last week, Pastor Tim gave a message. And thank you, Pastor Tim, wherever Pastor Tim's at right now. Thank you very much for doing that. I appreciate that. Thank you, man. Go ahead. I appreciate you doing that. And, uh, and, and it is important, the, the, the power and the importance of prayer, that's something that we'll be talking through uh, quite a bit in the days uh, in the days that are coming. Today we'll be lasting in Revelation for a short break because um, we have Palm Sunday and then Easter Sunday coming, and so I'm looking forward to that. Uh, but this chapter, it actually sets us up for the rest of the book, so I think it's an important chapter uh, to look at. So two weeks ago, we were introduced to this little scroll, remember that? And, and John has to eat this little scroll that, that was, what was written on it, the, the things that God was going to do in the day of wrath. And he did not reveal exactly what some of those things are. But John had to eat it, and it tasted like honey to his lips, but it became bitter in his stomach because it's a difficult message to carry. And, uh, and that's where we were left off with, with the idea that we are the watchmen now, and it is our job to... Uh, to warn people of the coming wrath of God. Then we come into chapter 11, and, and John sees something very, very interesting. In fact, it's kind of a zoom out a little bit, and, and God shows him a, something completely new. So let's, let's hop right into verse 1. You read this, this. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. So here we get this glance of, of what I believe is a glance of the, of the entire tribulation period. Um, and why? Because he's given this measuring rod. Now the idea of the measuring rod is usually one of, in scripture, is usually one of ownership. Once, once you purchase something, then you measure it out and it's, it's yours. You, so you take stock of what you have. And here we're seeing this idea that God will once again have the temple in, in Jerusalem. And, in, in, and so it's an interesting concept because... The temple was destroyed, right, in 72 AD. And so, in fact, for many years, this, this has been one of the reasons that many people have said the book of Revelation cannot be literally true because, because this is a, a, a prophecy about the future, and there's going to be a temple that's going to be surrounded by people worshiping at the temple, and that just can't happen. Why? Because it's, it, uh, the temple's already been destroyed, and, and uh, so, therefore, the, the prophecy must be must be wrong. That was kind of the idea. Um, little did they know how, how sovereign our God is, right? And, and how things tend to work out. So I find this very interesting. But when does this take place? And I think if we keep a finger here in Revelation chapter 11, I think to understand this in this, in this prophetic context, we kind of need to go back to Daniel chapter 9. So remember back when we studied uh, the book of Daniel. So back in Daniel chapter 9, we read this in verse 27. It says, Then he, talking about the Antichrist, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, 
even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. What was going on in context? If you remember all the way back to when we were studying the book of Daniel, what was going on in context? Remember, we had 70 weeks of prophecy, and every week was seven years instead of seven days, right? And here he's talking about the 70th week, the last week, the day of the Lord, right? Uh, when it was going to take place. And, uh, and at the beginning of that week, I'll go back to verse, the beginning of the verse, then he, talking about the Antichrist, would confirm a covenant with many for one week. So there's going to be a covenant confirming for one week, but in the middle of that week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So what this prediction is saying is that there's going to be a seven-year period of time. At the beginning of that seven-year period of time, the Antichrist is going to confirm a covenant, allowing sacrifices to be made at the temple. And then halfway through that, he's going to put an end to it. He's going to go back on his word. So to, to look at it in context of the 70th week, this, this final week, this 70th week of seven years, which we now call the tribulation, in the first half of it, there are going to be sacrifices at this new temple. There's going to be sacrifices at this new temple, and right in the middle of it, the Antichrist is going to put a stop to it and say no more. So are you with me so far? We're going a little deep tonight, or tonight, today. It must be a little deep, because I'm thinking I'm already in nighttime, right? Go a little deep, but if you follow me, I think you'll find this, this pretty interesting. So this midway through this process is where this is this is going to end. And so the question is that you might say, well, wait a second, uh, Pastor Dave, uh, would the Jews ever receive permission to offer sacrifice? Sacrifices once again at the at the temple. First of all, we have a problem. The temple isn't fully constructed either, and and yet, would the, the Jews ever be allowed to? Because who owns the property where the temple was in Jerusalem? Does anyone know? Yeah, I, I heard a couple people say it. it. The Muslims do. It's part of the Arabic corridor. So the Muslims actually own that. They, they claim that it's a holy site for them as well. Because on the rock uh, there, that's where Muhammad supposedly received his vision from the Lord and so on. Um, and so they have that dome on the rock is what they call it. It's also the same rock where Abraham uh, was offering Isaac. And so it's a place of, of, of significance for all monotheists, right? For all, all three monotheistic beliefs, Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And so right now it's owned by the Muslims. So would they ever allow the Jews to come in and offer sacrifices at, their, at the temple? That just doesn't seem very likely from a human perspective, right? Um, but I'm going to show you a, a quick video here. And uh, so let's go ahead and hit that, that video here. Uh, so let's take us out during that and into Jerusalem for a moment. And just this last fall in November, known as the Temple Activists, were granted permission to make sacrifices just outside the temple wall. So let that sink in. This is modern. History. This is what's going on right now. They have hold of this starting a third temple with permission from the UN. This is what their goal is. This is one of them uh, speaking there and what he said about that. Would you say it's more of a one world uh, temple for the whole world? It does never one religion. Like a nation. Like a, the nations are like uh, gemstones, very precious. <laughs> So maybe the United Nations will, will work with you in this. Maybe, maybe, maybe so. we hope that they will change the way. I share that with you just to 
things that are talked about in Scripture from 2,000 years ago that people have made fun of, saying there's no way this stuff could ever happen. And all of a sudden, we're starting to see these things happening in real time. Did you see the Uri Wick? Yeah. I mean, your, your jaw should drop a little bit. <laughs> You're like, wow, wait a minute. How on earth could they have known about this stuff 2,000 years ago? And yet we're seeing this now. We're seeing this kind of a, uh, of a situation where they actually believe this. I find it interesting because these are Jews. These are not uh, Messianic Jews. They do not believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. In fact, my... Uh, take the part of the portion right before that he even said the, the, the real Messiah will unite all of the world into one religion um, but that Messiah is not Jesus that's what, what he said and, and yet the, their um, uh, that goal is to kind of bring everyone together and you can see the, the table being set for some type of, of a covenant where they'll say okay we're, we're going to allow you to offer sacrifices you see that working in that direction. Um, so this is very real, and, uh, and this is very, very current when you think about it. But let's look at the verse 2 of, of chapter 11, of Revelation 11 again. But leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it will be given to the Gentiles. And they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Let's think about that for a moment. We've got the, this is what we've got so far. The tribulation, the first half sacrifices of the new temple are going to be allowed for a period of time. We know that the Antichrist is going to stop that in the middle. And then for 42 months, by the way, how long is 42 months? Three and a half. Boy, you guys are good at math, but hey. Um, so, so for three and a half years, then what, what happens? They're, they're going to trample the, the Jerusalem underfoot for those 42 months or for those three and a half years. And so we see that the holy place and the holy of holies is going to be allowed to offer sacrifices. But the place known as the court of the Gentiles is still going to belong to the Gentiles at that point. And then, uh, then the, the Gentiles are going to trample them underfoot for 42 months. Now hopefully this sounds a little bit familiar to us. If you've been here while we studied the book of Daniel, we saw this happen with the first Antichrist. Remember? In fact, when we look at Daniel's fulfillment, we, we, we go back to Daniel 9 and look at what he talked about. He talked about the, the first Antichrist, right? And the three and a half year period of time where he was going to trample the Jews underfoot in Jerusalem. And he did that. And in fact, uh, he did that from uh, 168 uh, BC to uh, 165 BC. So it started in. Um, in June of 168 BC and ended in December of 165 BC for three and a half years. It was Antiochus Epiphanes just trampled them underfoot in a bloody Holocaust uh, against the Jewish people. And then the scripture tells there would be multiple Antichrists from that point. People were just trying to destroy the Jews. And all of those would become foreshadows of what? The Antichrist. All of those would be foreshadows of the Antichrist that we're actually talking about here in the book of Revelation. Are you still with me? You see how, how Daniel predicted these, these things, and we see them now starting to take place. So this is going to be three and a half years at some point in the future that has not happened yet, but there's going to be this three and a half year period of time. And uh, remember when Antiochus Epiphanes uh, was there, he, he offered a pig as a sacrifice on the altar to the Lord. And that's called, at that time, it's called the abomination of desolation. 
and to have the abomination of desolation. Well, we don't know at this point right now just to know if that means a literal pig is going to be offered on a sacrifice. That's very possible. Or if the, that pig being offered as a sacrifice becomes a representation of some other form of sacrilege that takes place um, in that day. But this is what this is what we're going to see. You might say, Pastor, if you actually believe all this stuff is going to happen? Yes, yes I do. I do. Yes, I do. Um, why? Because we've actually seen it predicted in the Old Testament and by people who never made wrong predictions. <coughs> Daniel predicted in Titus Epiphanes with detail. Remember the detail? I got a hundred and some predictions in 19 verses, and all of them came true in detail. Remember that? So it would be foolish not to believe that this prediction is going to take place. And um, and so we look at it. Now, it's in the midst of this context that something very interesting happens. Look at verse, verse 3. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. All right, let's check your math one more time. 1,260 days is how long? I don't give as clear of an answer. Is that that? I'll give you a clue. It's the same thing, 42 months. So how long is it? It has three and a half years. How many were trying to do the math in there, right? And so, yeah, so for three and a half years, he's going to give these two witnesses. So God's going to bring, bring to the earth these two witnesses, uh, which is important, by the way, because the Bible says in Deuteronomy that it's only through, through two or three witnesses. You have to have a minimum of two witnesses for a witness to be valid, right? That's what we learned in the Old Testament. And so we definitely see that. The question is, who are these, uh, who are these witnesses, right? Um, and there are some clues in the text. And there, there are several theories. And here's a couple of theories. I'll just go out there. One is, uh, some say that there's two future prophets that, either, that don't exist yet. Or maybe they exist today, they just aren't the prophets yet. Um, there are others who would say that it's Enoch and Elijah. Um, now, the reason for that is an interesting reason why this theory uh, says that it's Enoch and Elijah. It's because neither of these two men, these are the only two men in Scripture that we can figure out that didn't die. They didn't die. That seems a little weird, right? But they did not die. You might remember Enoch in the Genesis 5 says that Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. So we don't know a lot of details. All we know is God took Enoch to heaven. We also read in the second Kings about Elijah. And it happened as they continued on and talked that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with, with the course of the fire and separated two of them, being Elijah and Elisha. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So Elijah was just carried off into heaven without, without dying. And so the thought is these could be the two witnesses that come back. That's a very interesting theory, and, and it's possibly right. It's a, it's a very interesting theory. There are others who would say that it's, it's Moses and Elijah, for example, and if you look in the, in the English order of the books of the Old Testament, the last book we have is Malachi. And, and Malachi ends uh, in, uh, in this way, it says, remember the law of Moses, which I commanded him in Torah for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Does that make sense? He's going to send Elijah. Who else is mentioned in the context? Moses. 
And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. So before this curse, God says, I'm going to send Elijah. The only other person mentioned in that same context is Moses. And so that, that is also a very interesting uh, theory. I do think there's some clues in the text which would tell us which theory carries more water. So let's continue in the text. These, talking about the two witnesses, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing for the God of the earth. Here's a clue. So what do we have to do? We have to put on our, our Indiana Jones hats and let's dig into this a little bit, right? Let's figure out what, what's he talking about here. Uh, the two lampstands and the two olive trees. And, and uh, this is a very clear, for those who have had the opportunity to study the scriptures, these are, this is a very clear allusion to Zechariah uh, chapter 4. So Zechariah chapter 4, let me read verses 1 through 6. Uh, if you want to keep a finger in, in Revelation, we'll keep our base camp there where we're going to make these little uh, little rabbit trails to these other places. So Zechariah chapter 4, we read this. Now the angel who talked with me came back and wakened me as a man was wakened out of his sleep. And he said to me, what do you see? So I said, I am looking, and there is a lampstand of solid gold with a bowl on top of it, and on the stand seven lamps with seven pipes to the seven lamps. Two olive trees are by it, one at the right of the bowl and the other at its left. So I answered and spoke to the angel who talked with me, saying, what are these, my lord? Then the angel who talked with me answered and said to me, do you not know what these are? And he said, No, my Lord. So he answered me, or he answered and said to me, This is the word of the Lord to, to Zerubbabel. There's a lot of different pronunciations for that name, but I'll just go Zerubbabel, okay? Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. Now, I wish we had time to just go into all the context of this, but I'll pull a few things out of this context. To help us have this, like a little bit of greater understanding of what's, what's going on here with these these two witnesses. We've got the these two olive trees uh, that that we read about in verse four. These two olive trees. Um, olive trees are known mainly for one thing. I guess two things. They're known for making olives. And number two, they're known for their longevity. Right? They they last a long time. Uh, in fact, it's, it's difficult to measure the lifespan of an olive tree because they live long enough that the rings start bleeding together. And uh, so guesses on the low end of the spectrum, as I looked online, the guesses on the low end of the spectrum say the average lifespan is 500 years. Others say they live up to 1,500 years. It's interesting enough, the olive trees that are in the Garden of Gethsemane, which overlooks the temple, uh, are considered to be over 2,000 years old. I find that fascinating. In fact, to think that the very same trees that are overlooking the temple right now would be the same trees that Jesus saw when he was praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Is that cool as what? Anyone want to go on an Israel trip? Well, let's put a sign up out there right now. I think we'd probably get a group. Um, it would be awesome to see. And so I think the idea of, of the... Of the olive tree is that of longevity, intergenerationality, the idea uh, that they've been around. They've seen more than we see. They get a bigger perspective than what we, we do. And so I think that what he's saying here in this point uh, is, uh, is that these two witnesses 
have been around. They've been observing generation after generation. They, they have a bigger perspective than the average uh, human being. So to me, the idea of being two future prophets seems unlikely, especially considering that God says these are the two lampstands, these are the two olive trees that are standing before me, and they were already existing at the time of Zechariah, two future to future prophets, it would make no sense because they haven't existed yet. Does that make sense? Yep. So, so I think we can eliminate that one off of, off of our, our, our grid here. But I think it's interesting too that uh, it also says the two lampstands. And the idea in Zechariah is very clear that the lampstands represent the word of the Lord. By the way, all through Scripture, the word of the Lord is represented as light, isn't it? The word is a lamp. And so it's very consistent in Scripture that the idea that the, the Word illuminates and, and it's the Word of the Lord and it's very clear that it's not something that people come up with, not, not by my or my power or my spirit, but, uh, but by my spirit, says the Lord, so that it comes from the Holy Spirit. I find this very interesting because this is exactly what Peter tells us about all prophets who speak on God's behalf. You might remember in 2 Peter, he says, and so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. Recognize that? Never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by hmm, the Holy Spirit. And so this, there's this idea that uh, the lampstands are represents the word of God that's given via the Holy Spirit. So I think there's our clues so far. We're trying to figure out who these witnesses are. Clues so far: one, they've been around for multiple generations, and they gave revelations inspired by the Holy Spirit. To me, this would suggest, and I'm not going to, I, I will not throw stones at anyone who disagrees with me on this point, but. I, uh, this would suggest that the Moses and Elijah camp carries more weight than Enoch and Elijah camp. Uh, why? Because Moses is usually the representative of the law. And Elijah is oftentimes used as the representative of the prophets. Taken together, that becomes the inspired word of God that is given via the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? And so... And in fact, you find the law and the prophets being mentioned together all through Scripture, representing the illumination of, of the Old Testament. I'll throw a few examples. Daniel 9, 10, we will not obey the voice of the Lord our God to walk in his laws, which he said before us by his servants, the prophets. Or Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I have, this is Jesus talking, do not think that I have come to destroy what? The law or the prophets. He's talking about the Old Testament called the law and the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Or in Matthew 11, 13, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. Or 22, 40, on these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Again, Jesus using the law and the prophets to represent all of the inspired scripture up to that point. Or in Luke 16, the law and the prophets were until John. Since that time, the kingdom of God has been preached and everyone is pressing so you get this idea, it's, it's consistent. If you want to find more, I have a list of more verses. Just have to come my notes and I'll give it to you. But here's the point. I, I think we've got 
Moses representing the law, Elijah representing the prophets, and so it would make sense for them to be these two witnesses for us. Uh, they've always been the witnesses. And so I believe at least that, that regardless of how correct on, on this, these two witnesses will be in the temple and they will prophesy about the coming doom and destruction and the wrath of God. How many of you think that would be a popular message today? <laughs> it's not a popular message, right? And, and so you think, well, why don't they just kill them? I mean, that seems to be what happens today. If you don't like the message, you silence them. If they won't be silenced, you kill them, right? That's the, that's the nature of things. But look at verse 5. We read this. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Whoa. Wow. That's amazing. When we think about it, first of all, it's, it's, it's good to understand. Fire proceeds from their mouth. That's an expression in Greek. Um, the idea isn't that fire comes out of their mouth. The idea is that they speak something, and then whatever they're speaking about, fire consumes them. So that's the, that's the expression in Greek. Fire proceeds from their mouth. They speak it, and boom. How many would love to have that superpower? <laughs> yeah, that'd be a pretty cool superpower. <laughs> Stop rain from happening. 
All we have to do is say the word and no more rain. Well, by the way, who had the ability to do that in the Old Testament? Did you know that Moses did that in Deuteronomy 11? And Elijah did that in 1 Kings 17, as we mentioned in Luke 4, 25 as well. Interesting enough, right? Uh, they both had that uh, ability. We also learned that uh, they'll, they'll be able to turn water into blood. Right? Does that sound familiar? Yeah. yeah, Moses did that in Exodus 7. Right? And, and Elijah did that in 2 Kings 3. Now I know what you're thinking. Ah, I see what you did, Pastor Dave. You, you, you tricked us there. That says Elisha, not Elijah. Right? Anyone catch that? Yeah. Or did I, did I trick everybody? Uh, yeah, it does. It does say, uh, I did put uh, Elisha, because it was Elisha. But here's what I think is interesting. Uh, I'm not going to make you go there, but just, just listen to this. This comes from the, the 2 Kings 2, 9 through 11. Remember, Elisha was the apprentice for Elijah. This is what you read. And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask, what may I do for you before I am taken away from you? Elisha said, please let me a double portion of your spirit be upon me. He's like, I want to be able to do what you do. This place is good. <laughs> so he said, you've asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, you shall, it shall not be so. So he's like, all right, you stick with me until I'm taken up by this chariot of fire. Then you will have that. Verse 11, then it happened. As they continued on in the talk, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them, and Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. So Elisha received the abilities of Elijah, and then Elisha, the very next chapter, was able to turn water into blood, which means, by implication, what does that mean about Elijah? That he was able to turn water into blood. How many of you followed that? Yeah. All right, so the third of you. Okay, but that's good enough, eh? To get the idea there, and then lastly, they're able to produce plagues. And again, Moses, Moses um, pronounced plagues against Egypt, Elijah against Ahab, and they have. Again, all evidence suggests, I'm going to say suggests, I'm not going to say proves, but suggests that the two witnesses are Moses and Elijah, which by the way helps us understand other events in the New Testament, helps us understand the transfiguration. Remember the transfiguration? Remember this? After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, the writer of Revelation, and led him up to high mountain themselves. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as light. And behold, what? Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. So Jesus gets this encounter that only happens when you encounter God in his throne room. So Jesus transfigures somehow. So he, he, he has this glowing face. He's been in the presence of the Lord. Who else is in the presence of the Lord? Who are the two lampstands? Who are the two olive trees? Moses and Elijah. That makes sense. They're the ones who pop in on this, this magnificent event. Yeah, Moses. And Elijah was there. Now, why is this important? I, I, the reason is because it goes back to the idea that Moses represents the law and Elijah represents the prophets. And these are witnesses 
witnesses of Christ and the witnesses of the reality of God's wrath. Right? And, and by the way, these have always been the witnesses. They've always been the in fact, if you don't believe in these, you won't believe in the future. And you won't believe, even if you saw someone raised from the dead, you won't believe. Say, Pastor Dave, how do you know that? Luke 16. You can turn there if you'd like. I'm just going to read. I want you to hear just the way the original audience would have heard it. Luke 16, we have the story of Jesus. By the way, this is not a parable. He gives a parable, and it says, and so this is the actual, this is the real story that the parable represents. This is a real story. And he says this, there was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid at his gate, desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell off the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. And so it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died and was buried. And being in torment in hell, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And said Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. This is not a pretty picture, is it? I just have a little water and he's in torment. Verse 25, but Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus his bad things, but now he is comforted, and you are tormented. And besides all this, between us there is a, there is a great gulf fixed, so that those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. This is where I think it's interesting, Listen, and you'll see the connection of what we're talking about today. Then he said, I beg you, therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. I didn't believe in all this, all this talk about torment. I didn't believe in condemnation. I didn't believe in the wrath of God. So please, go send a message to my brothers. I've got brothers, they need to hear this. What does he tell them? Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. They're the witnesses. You see what's going on? You have, you have witnesses. You have the law, you have the prophets, and they testify to who Christ is. They testify to the coming judgment. They tell you that condemnation is coming. It's your own fault if you don't believe it. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He's saying, Okay, that's not a good enough witness. They need to see someone rise from the dead. But he said to him, If they did not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rise from the dead. Wow. You've got your witnesses. And this is enough. And if you don't believe in that, you could watch someone rise from the dead. I believe was a foreshadow of a couple of things. <laughs> Jesus rose from the dead. And not, not to put too many spoilers, but so did two witnesses. Right. And it doesn't change a thing. Like, if you're not persuaded by this, you will not be persuaded by seeing that happen. The bottom line is the world has the law and the prophets. As witnesses, 
to the wrath of God and the fact that judgment is coming. And in the end, God is going to bring back two representatives of the witnesses back to the earth, and they're going to carry all of the authority and the same powers that they had in ancient times. Attesting to the reality of who they are. Do you believe that's going to happen? I do. I believe it's, it's going to happen exactly as, as it says. The world's going to hate them. They're going to try to kill them. They're going to try and silence them. And alas, they'll fail. They'll fail. Imagine for a moment walking into a room of friends and they're watching a football game, let's say, and, and uh, let's say the score is 49 to 0. Right? One thing's getting They're getting creamed. That's right. <laughs> and it's going into halftime, right? And, and, uh, and as you mingle, you find that your friends have been placing some friendly bets. I'm not suggesting you do that. Master Dave is not advocating gambling, right? But let's say they have some friendly bets, so, you know, whatever it is, uh, pizza or push ups or something like that. And so they're, they're placing their bets. And, uh, and, and for some reason, they invite you to join in, but you have the advantage of already going to score halftime. Right? You come in, you already know. Let me ask you, how many of you would place your bet on a team that had 49 points? None of you? So maybe two? Okay, one or two. That would be the most logical bet. I mean, if I walked in at halftime, and I had to guess, and it's 49-0, I would say that the team that has 49 uh, points, uh, I, would, I, would, I would guess that. However, and let's assume for a moment that before you place your bet, two more friends come in. And these two friends say, hey, Dave, did you know that that's a televised, or, or that's a, a recorded game, and actually it was yesterday? In fact, we were at the game. And man, was that the greatest comeback of all time. Now you have two witnesses of the game telling you, let me ask this, where would you place your goal now? I don't know about you, but if I have two honest Witnesses who can prove their veracity, stepping out of the analogy a little bit, and to, to prove that they're telling the truth. I have two honest witnesses saying, we were at the game, and the team that had 49 points and a half, they lost. Then I would place my bet with what seems less logical from a human perspective to go with what is certain. Does that make sense? Yeah. To believe that there is a, a wrath of God a judgment of God that's coming to this earth when, we've, when everything we've seen our entire life is that people tend to get away with stuff? To believe that the wrath of God is coming, to believe that, that these prophecies are actually going to come true is not logical from a human perspective. I get it. However, we have great witnesses that will prove otherwise. And in the end, God is only going to bring back two representatives of those witnesses and they're going to say the wrath of God is coming. People are going to try and kill them. They will be consumed by fire. And they still will not believe. Why? Because if you don't believe in these, you will never believe. It just won't work. So I'm telling you, the world is going to get worse. The number of Christians will dwindle. I get it. The number of Christians will dwindle to a point that People will make fun of you for believing in, in this. 
I'd say that's already been happening quite a bit. And it's going to seem like the evildoers of the world are ultimately going to get away with everything, and people will mock anyone who believes in God or in his law or in his prophets. In fact, I saw in the uh, news this weekend about, about Pompeo and all of his work of, of getting some of the uh, 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 getting some of the, the people out of countries where they were hostage and held hostage. And he was going to be he was going to be honored for that. And I know that there's some political stuff there. And that's not my point is to be, to be political. But when I saw what uh, I think New York Times or, or Washington Post, what they put about it, they said. They said, never has anyone been in this position that's been such an out, you know, outspoken, uh, born-again believer. And, and how can you even think of honoring a person who, who has, you know, we're already at that point where it is okay publicly to make fun of you for your beliefs. And if, if, if they can make fun of me for, for my beliefs, and I'm putting it out on, on, uh, on YouTube, right? It's out there. And the world will make fun of that. And, 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 and you know what? I'm okay with that. Yeah. I'm okay with that. Why am I okay with that? Because I've talked to these two witnesses. And they know how the game ends up. And I don't care what the score is right now. God never loses. In fact, he, he, that's just drama for him. He, he likes to create some drama. And yeah, he loves it. To put us in situations where, where things are look, looking horrible, and at the end, boom, God comes and shows his, shows his strength. We've seen that Daniel in the lion's den, right? Uh, the fiery furnace. We've seen, we've seen it time and time and time again where things look just about as bad as they can be, and then God shows up. And I'll tell you what, I'm banking on God showing up because he always has. And humanly speaking, it might not be the most logical thing. But it is the wisest thing. Make sense? Yeah. Talk about applications here for a moment. Uh, again, our head, our heart, and our hands. How does it affect what we think, what we feel, what we do? Um, say, number one, know that men are without excuse. You know, no one can blame their rejection of the gospel on a lack of information. Don't fall for that lie. Don't fall for the lie that, you know, that, well, if people don't, just don't know, then, then they'll be okay. No, God has given us the law, and he's given us his promise, or his prophets. He has confirmed their veracity with signs and wonders, various miracles. And if people are unwilling to repent, it is a spiritual problem, not an intellectual problem. Are you with me that? If people are unwilling to repent, it's a spiritual problem and not an intellectual one. Even places where they don't hear of the gospel, you know, they have a person recognizes that the Holy Spirit convicts them, that the Bible says the Holy Spirit convicts the world of sin and of judgment, says. But guess what? If they seek, what does the Bible say? It doesn't say that they will be found. It says, or if you seek, you will find. Um, it says, if you seek, you will be found by Him. God will seek them out. Men are without excuse. Why? Because it's a spiritual problem, not an intellectual one. There hasn't been enough proof. In fact, when even more proof, when undeniable proof is presented before them, there's no lack of it. In our hearts, I'd say a couple of things. Well, number one is trust in the reliability of the scriptures. The law and the prophets have been tested by history, and they've been proved. 
prove an accurate. And they say that the wrath of God is coming. So you know what I believe? The wrath of God is coming. It is very real. So hands, what do we do with this information? Say this. Warn people. Warn people that they have offended the holy God. While it is still time to repent. You know what? We, we serve a holy God. He's wrathful for a reason, and he deserves to be wrathful, and at the same time, he loves us. He loves us so much that in light of understanding who God is and what he deserves and how far short from that we have fallen as a, as a race of people. In spite of that, John 3.16 says, what? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. And who sort of believes in him should not perish have everlasting life. I don't know about you, but as I study this, the more I study this, the more I just have this overwhelming feeling of great gratefulness and gratitude. Anyone else feel that? This is not what I'm, this is not what I'm getting. God has forgiven me, and it's not because I'm a great person. It's because of Jesus died on the cross for me. Wow. And that ought to light a fire under us so that we actually go out there and warn people, say, you know what? Hey, I know this is a very popular message, but you offend the Holy God. And he's angry, but he's willing to forgive you if you only put your trust in Jesus Christ. Don't carry the lie back in the back of your mind that people will not be held accountable for their ignorance. They have offended the Holy God. These seals and trumpets of God's wrath are real and they're deserved and they're in the coming. By way of invitation, I really want to address two things. There may be some that you've been, been attending here, maybe this is even your first time here. I don't know what your background is, but maybe you've come today and, and this is all new and, and I don't know where you're coming from, but I'll tell you what, this is real. And you have an opportunity. To accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and He will forgive you of all of your sins, so that you will not be held accountable for any of that condemnation. In fact, you receive a reward, not that you deserve, but the reward that Jesus Christ Himself deserved, because He died in your place. And I'll tell you what, if you would like to make that decision today, it would thrill everyone else in this room. Amen. Amen. And so I would like to give you that opportunity. And so when we when we have a a chance to sing a song, and we'll ask you to stand. I'm going to ask you to either come forward to me or to work your way to the back, where we'll have uh, someone show you from God's word that you know for sure that you have eternal life. I'm also going to ask for an invitation for those of you who have accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. You say, you know, I know this, and I feel that sense of gratitude, and I'm, I'm, just, I'm very thankful for, uh, for, for this. But maybe, maybe the Holy Spirit's impressed on you the urgency that you need to get this message out. And maybe there's someone at work, or maybe there's a family member, or, or, or maybe there's someone at your school, or, or someone in your neighborhood that you have a relationship with, and you know that if they were to die today, they would begin their process of condemnation. And you realize that it's real, and it's your job to be an ambassador for Christ to get that message out of there. And I'm just going to ask you to come forward as well. I'm not going to bother you. I'll let you come to the board. And you get along with God and just pray to God. Pray for that person. And pray that 
God will give you opportunities to talk to that person and invite them to a relationship with Jesus Christ. Would you be willing to do that? And I would ask you to come forward to We won't bother you. It's between you and God. Let me pray, and then we'll, and then we'll have a time.